Hi, everyone. Welcome to PWG's Well Chat Podcast. I'm Dr. Nikki. I'm Dr. Eileen. And the topic we're going to cover today is sleep. But first, quick note, as always, this is an educational podcasting series. Please take whatever you find useful, but make sure you talk about it with your own healthcare professional before you make any changes. Okay. So in the last episode in our introduction, we talked about how important we think sleep is. It's part of the trifecta that holds up everything else about our health, sleep, nutrition, and exercise. So let's do a deeper dive and unpack sleep. What does it do besides feel like a giant waste of time if you're a four-year-old that doesn't want to go to bed? Or a teenager. Or a teenager. Or if you're a resident who is desperate for sleep like we were. And you've been up for 48 hours. What does it do? It is as important as food and water for us to function. In fact, there is lots of good data coming out that getting good sleep does so much for you. It can be just as beneficial as a regular mindfulness practice. It helps you learn and create new memories. can have a housekeeping role. What does that mean when you're using your brain, i.e. thinking all day, running your body all day? There are toxins that build up. And the process of sleep helps remove those toxins or really kind of reboot your brain. Uh, during deep sleep, your body works to repair muscles, organs, other cells, fight off infections. Uh, it You have chemicals that strengthen your immune system. You, you also, there's good data in pediatrics that you grow when you sleep. You spend about a fifth of your night's sleep in deep sleep when you're young and healthy. A little bit more if you haven't slept enough recently. So bottom line, you and I both knew on an intuitive level, sleep is really important. Uh, the, it's nice to be able to drop some data bombs in the middle of a conversation and say, no, this is really why sleep is important. Dreaming is a part of sleep, and that's really important to help process emotions. Stress and anxiety can lead to bad dreams, which can sometimes set up that loop of, I don't want to fall asleep because I don't want to have scary dreams and the boogie monster is going to come and get me and you need to be in my bed because I don't want to sleep, but, but more on that later. So, <laughs> or you just can't, you can't, your brain just won't stop thinking. It's really difficult. Now, how much sleep do we need? That varies according to age. Uh, for children, they need more sleep. They're growing, their bodies are changing, developing. Babies uh, need 16 to 18 hours a day. That's a lot of sleep. So don't worry if your babies are spending more time asleep than awake at this point. For school-age kids and teens, they need an average of nine and a half hours per night. And I find that um, that an to be a very difficult recommendation for our teenagers to follow. I don't know, Dr. Nikki, how many yeah. <laughs> how many hours do most of your high school students report when you ask them? Well, first off, they hate answering that question, but the world <laughs> that we've created for them is not conducive to sleep because most adolescent sleep cycles, they don't really wind down till 11 or midnight. I remember this mm -hmm. back in the last century, just not being sleepy until midnight, but you know, I can't roll into school at 9 a.m., which would be ideal. So we, we haven't set up a good world for them. I think sheepishly they look at me when I ask and they say, well, I think I'm supposed to get eight to nine hours, <laughs> but I'm getting six. That's a good night. I think it's just terrible that that we're not able to set a stage for our teenagers who are still growing and still developing and having neurons connecting that we can't somehow jimmy jimmy their schedules so they can get at least eight hours a night most adults need between seven to nine hours a night as you get older the quality and the quantity of sleep can diminish but you still need the same amount of sleep 
Yeah, that was interesting. I didn't know that. Um, explains a lot about my life, but now I know. Okay, so well, now we're going <laughs> to... We are the... We are very... We had a lot of practice working without sleep. So I think we understand that you function better when you've had eight or nine hours of sleep versus functioning with no sleep for 36 hours. We had to do that quite a bit. Yes. Are all you parents of newborns out there where you think you won the lottery when you've gotten four hours in a row or you wake up in a panic because something's happened to the baby, but no, you just got the bonanza of the baby slept for four hours in a row. You also can commiserate about how tough it is without a good solid stretch of sleep. So now we're going to dive into the biology and science of sleep. I apologize if you're not science oriented, uh, feel free to fast forward, but I found this very interesting. So I wanted to share it with you. There are multiple parts of your brain that are involved in sleep. There is something called the hypothalamus that affects sleep and arousal, i.e. waking up from sleep. You have your brainstem, which I kind of think of as the autopilot part of your brain that controls transition between sleep and waking up. You've got your thalamus that relays information from all your senses to your cerebral cortex, which is involved in dreams. So what does that mean, you might say? So remember when you decide to stay up late and watch The Exorcist or Nightmare on Elm Street? <laughs> Please don't. Don't watch those. Don't watch those. <laughs> but if you did, or you're in the middle of this really violent video game where you're shooting everything up, your senses are processing all this. They're sending all of this information via the thalamus to your cerebral cortex. And your cerebral cortex doesn't really know the difference between an imaginary Freddy Krueger and there's really somebody that you need to be terrified. It doesn't know the difference. So... And I know you probably know this on an intuitive level and parents of kids who have nightmares, you really know this, but, but what you see, what you think about, what input you put in your brain before you're falling asleep can really impact your sleep quality. And we know that the part of your brain that's responsible for those, that information getting relayed is your thalamus. There's this little thing called the pineal gland, which makes melatonin. And we'll talk about that more later, but that's where melatonin is produced and that should match the body's circadian rhythm of light and dark. And Dr. Eileen's going to talk more about that fancy word circadian rhythm. But melatonin is, is one more piece of your body's inner clock. You've got your basal forebrain and your midbrain. I love these terms, right? You ran so out of scientific. different words. So we'll just call this the forebrain and the midbrain, which help promote sleep and wakefulness. And when you're drinking caffeine, that's where it impacts your sleep cycle. And then you've got the amygdala, which quite frankly is one of my favorite words. The amygdala, which processes emotions and is active during REM sleep. So those are all the different parts of your brain. So you can see it's really kind of a complicated circuit. It's amazing that it works for most of us every night. No kidding. Right? Okay. So that's the sort of the nuts and bolts, the hardware slash some of the software bits for sleep. Dr. Eileen's going to talk more about sleep. There are two basic stages. You have REM, rapid eye movement, and non-REM sleep. And that has three different stages. You cycle through those several times per night. And what we see a lot of in pediatrics is newborns and infants, young infants, waking up. For those of you who uh, are experiencing this right now, <laughs> it will pass. I'm just going to say it will pass. But babies often, when they're in the first one to four months of life, will wake up every two to four hours. Yeah. 
And then they will need something to help them to go back to sleep. The something is usually mom nursing a bottle, being burped. It's something and it becomes a sleep routine for them in order for them to go back to sleep. And we as adults who have normal sleep don't need a sleep routine for this to happen, but because we have figured out in the first few months of life how to put ourselves back to sleep. But these sleep cycles are interesting for us because we do see problems with learning to put yourself to sleep in the first few months of life. Now, non-REM stage three is the deep sleep you need. And if you get enough of that, then you are going to feel great in the morning. You're going to feel ready to go and conquer your day. And you usually have longer periods of this during the first half of the night. Now, Dr. Nikki mentioned about circadian rhythms or what we would also call your body clock controlling the timing of sleep. There are some things that can disturb this jet lag can disturb your circadian rhythm. There's a mismatch between your internal clock and the actual clock. What does that mean, mismatch between your internal clock and your actual clock? Well, that means that if you're lucky enough to uh, vacation in Hawaii, (laughs) which for us is currently three hours behind, that you are going to fly to Hawaii and your body thinks that it's time to go to sleep because it's midnight but in Hawaii it's nine o'clock and people are still having dinner and your body thinks it's time to go to sleep because this circadian rhythm clock thing your all your hormones are set like your melatonin set to really shoot up when it's dark and fall when it's light and that is based on the pacific coast not in the Hawaii dark light is that right that is right okay so really as a newborn parent you just have baby jet lag all the time. Okay. <laughs> All right. I got you. Thanks. Okay. Right. Except it doesn't get better in a week or two, depending on how far away you travel. It gets better in a few months. Maybe you could think you're living in London time or Paris time, if that makes it better. Just send me some <laughs> great pastries and maybe I can make it through. Perfect. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to drop. Keep going. Um, yes. We, so we were talking about circadian rhythms and sleep-wake homeostasis. Um, There are things that also can affect uh, and disrupt your normal sleep patterns. These can be medical conditions, medications. One of the things we use is uh, Benadryl for allergies, for um, itching, for kids with eczema. And Benadryl, which is an over-the-counter antihistamine, can affect your sleep cycles. So you may feel like you slept very well and and you had a long period of sleep and you don't remember waking up but you actually may not feel as rested taking that medication stress definitely can affect your sleep i think most of us can can uh no. recall <laughs> some situation where you were stressed whether it was a positive or a negative stress and had a hard time falling asleep uh sleep environments um can affect your sleep i always tell my little patients when they tell me that they had a sleepover that it's really not a sleepover (laughs) that's the funniest word it's it's an awake over (laughs) because you actually probably never slept and I remember having sleepovers as a little kid and I didn't go to sleep the whole night so your sleep environment definitely can affect your uh, sleep pattern what you eat and drink and your light exposure can also change 
the ability to fall asleep and return to sleep when you're awake. I imagine for people who live in areas where it's always dark for a very long time or very light and they don't have good blackout shades, that that sleep-wake cycle is very disrupted. Or they have a lot of electronics in their bedroom, for example, and a lot of blue light, perhaps. The blue light is a whole nother topic, (laughs) (laughs) but many of my teenage patients have blue light glasses and you can get very stylish ones now so that you can sort of filter out some of the blue light, which makes your brain think it's time to get up and uh, works uh, in opposition to your natural melatonin production, which is trying to tell your body that it's time to fall asleep. It's not sedating. Melatonin isn't sedating, but it tells your body it's time to get ready to go to sleep. Yeah. So more on blue light later. Um, There's a bunch of chemicals that are involved. The fancy word is neurotransmitters. Think of them as messengers carrying carrying information or commands from one part of your brain to another. GABA is associated with sleep, muscle relaxation, and that sleepy feeling, sedation. Norepinephrine and orexin. These words are amazing. They keep our brain active when we're awake. Acetylcholine, histamines, adrenaline, cortisol, and serotonin all impact sleep and wakefulness in slightly different ways. Uh, Your genetics can play a part. There are some genetic disorders where you can't sleep or you sleep too much, like narcolepsy, or even something called restless leg syndrome. And, And honestly, that's a term, I think I first heard it maybe five to seven years ago. I don't, I don't remember hearing this in the dark ages when we were residents. Do you, Eileen? I think you see it more in the adult population. Right. But it's coming up more in the pediatric population as we have more pediatric sleep specialists and yeah. as we understand more about sleep. Yes. And restless legs as connected to other disorders like anemia or suboptimal iron processing. But again, we digress. So there's a lot of factors that go into the chemical side of sleep. One fact, one fun fact I found was you spend about two hours a night dreaming, which I think is fascinating. That's a long time that you need to dream and that dreaming is actually important. Okay. Do you remember your dreams? Oh, yes. Do you dream in black and white or color? Color. Oh, yeah, me too. Do you ever fly when you're dreaming? Yes. I love that. And I also have, I don't know about you, but I'll sort of get into these spells where I have the same anxiety dream with the same set of characters over and over and over again. Uh, it usually involves, curiously enough, my medical school friends or travel. Those are big triggers. What about you? Well, the recurring dream I used to always have was that I didn't make it to my final (laughs) in college, you know, stress study dreams. And I could visually see myself running to the school and I didn't and I could, and I was there and I didn't know anything. And I realized I'd never gone to class. I'm sure many of you can relate to that one, but I haven't had it for a while because it's been a while since I went to college. (laughs) (laughs) Nevertheless, dreaming is obviously very important. um, You know, I wish I could, I wish I could tell you what all the dream symbols mean. I find that fascinating, but that, that perhaps is for another podcast or you tell us fun fun dream interpretations but it's interesting to me because when I'll 
again, I'll touch my mother and I'll get the old country perspective. Oh, you dreamed about da 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 da. That means you're going to go on a trip or, oh, you did this. And so that's going to happen. That puts a lot of pressure on me when I'm dreaming, I got to tell you. I don't think I want to have somebody interpret my dreams like that. <laughs> I think it's... Especially not my mother. N- I'm going to leave that one. I'm not going to, I am not going to answer anyone on that one. Yes. But she can really tell you probably more than you want to know. It's her interpretation, right? And I think dreams are open to interpretation, but I do think it's interesting. Um, Now, how how can you tell that you're getting good sleep? Well, you can tell because you feel rested. You have capacity to deal with the stresses and the things that you need to do and to have the emotional energy to also be able to do the things you need to do and and tackle the the mental exercises that you might have to have to make for adults good quality sleep means that you typically fall asleep in 30 minutes or less and you are going to be sleeping soundly through the night with no more than one awakening and you drift back to sleep within 20 minutes if you do wake up yeah I agree with that that makes sense that's a good night's sleep. That's Are you kidding me? That's nirvana. <laughs> That's heaven. When should I worry about not getting enough sleep? Or when should you worry about not getting enough sleep? If you have chronic anxiety, there's if you are having difficulty functioning, getting through your day, if you're having trouble remembering things, if someone tells you you're not getting good sleep, <laughs> that's probably a great observation. And they probably waited for a while before they decided to you tell think? you. Maybe you were real cranky pants every day. No. <laughs> and they said, you need to go to sleep instead of playing computer games until four in the morning. Or you have a meltdown when you get picked up from daycare consistently. Yeah, I, I, yeah, there are probably very good clues to that one. For different ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, family history can suggest that you may have a condition that prevents you from sleeping well and... Of course, when there are stressful life events, those can definitely affect your ability to go to sleep. So one of the big conditions that a lot of people are talking about, and we get a lot of questions on, is sleep apnea. And quite literally, the definition of apnea is that your breathing starts and stops repeatedly during sleep. And you might, as you might imagine, your brain knows that breathing is important to us as human beings, and it does everything it can to make sure we're breathing at a pace that is required to maintain your bodily function. So apnea makes sense that it would be a problem because your brain's trying to go, wait a minute, hold up. You're supposed to be breathing. And for whatever reason, your body isn't breathing. So that's a major problem. There are two main kinds of apnea. They're central and obstructive. I'm going to list central apnea. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about central apnea. Dr. Eileen's going to dive into the obstructive stuff. Truthfully, central apnea is much less common. That's where your brain doesn't send the right signals to the muscles that control breathing. Uh, The Mayo Clinic is a great resource for the symptoms of central apnea, shortness of breath that wakes you up when you're sleeping, pauses in your breathing during sleep, which quite frankly, I don't think you're going to know, but if you're lucky enough to have someone else in the room that can tell you that, they'll tell you that. Difficulty staying asleep or the or you can tell you have central sleep apnea by the effects that you have the next day. So you're super drowsy in the daytime. You can fall asleep when you're working, watching TV, driving, or you know, in the middle of an important presentation or in a meeting <laughs> or at the doctor's office, for example. Like These are places that 
you should probably sit up and take notice while you're falling asleep there. So that's central sleep apnea. The other type of sleep apnea is obstructive. And in that situation, there is actually some physical blockage of your airway, which uh, prevents you from breathing normally when you sleep. And your throat muscles can intermittently relax and block your airway during sleep. I will sometimes have parents come in and say, my kid is really snoring and it sounds sometimes like they're choking. So when they say they're snoring is really helpful if you record the bits that are really scary because I've listened to some where I've looked at the parents and said, yeah, I I would be scared too. That doesn't sound good. And that's really helpful for your child's doctor to hear, to help them, to try to figure out what next steps would be in terms of investigating for obstructive sleep apnea. If you do have what we call OSA, that raises your risk for high blood pressure, diabetes, and obviously if you aren't getting good sleep, you are going to be sleepy in the day and there are risks for that. I would be concerned, for instance, with a teen driver being tired because of obstructive sleep apnea, not just because they were staying up all hours of the night because you are just not going to be more aware. Scary fact that you may or may not have heard, being drowsy from one of these forms of sleep apnea is the same lack of judgment and ability to drive as being drunk. It's that bad. Wow. Yeah. Sleepy driving equals drunk driving. So would you need a DD driver for obstructive sleep apnea? That's a good idea. Just like with... I hadn't thought about that. The symptoms for obstructive sleep apnea, there's a, there's a ton of them, quite frankly. And a lot of them can overlap with the central sleep apnea. But the ones I think that are important to highlight are really around the snoring and that gasping sound, the choking sound. Um, if you abruptly wake up feeling like you gasped or choked. Now, this is not to be confused with falling asleep and you know that jerking like you feel like you're falling off a cliff when you're trying to fall asleep or you didn't realize that you were falling asleep and as you fell asleep you made a funny snorting sound that's not what I'm talking about that's normal that's normal (laughs) maybe that's never happened to you good for you but speaking from person you don't remember right (laughs) so that's not the kind of sleep apnea I, I tell parents if you can listen to your child snore down the hall their door is closed but you can still hear it you probably should bring it up at the next visit. So sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, noisy, not restful sleep, and sometimes even waking up because you can't sleep because you can't breathe. So when do you think you need to get a sleep study? Or So, so sleep study, tell me tell me about that. Like that's a fancy word that you just threw in there, doctor, because she's fancy like that. Well, this can be this can be hard to do in children because what they'd like you to do is go sleep in a sleep lab. Oh, I guess you just like bring your pajamas <laughs> and your mom or your dad or your guardian, somebody that you trust goes with you and they monitor your oxygen level mm. and they look at how well you're sleeping. That doesn't sound like fun, actually. That sounds like a, like it would be hard to sleep naturally, whatever that means, in that setting. I think it can be, but often they're able to capture events in your sleep to decide that you're not getting enough air. Yes, and I've actually heard reports that they can do some sleep study with remote monitoring, so you don't have to necessarily go 
someplace else. Now they have devices that can be connected. So you can kind of get similar data in your own home. And again, if you have a recording of a child or a young adult with that snoring that's really loud, sometimes that can be the clincher. And I have had local ear, nose, and throat or ENT specialists who I trust very much take one listen and go, yep. Like we got to do something Right, we that. don't even need to do a sleep yeah. study, yeah. right? Because sometimes they can see that you've got whopping big tonsils or yeah. that there's some sort of obstructive process that they don't even feel they need to make you sleep in your pajamas in the lab. Yeah, okay, okay. So, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that no, was, that's good I to know what a sleep study is. And and I didn't even know there was this, this thing called a sleep doctor, but there is a specialty uh Sleep medicine. medicine. Yes. Sleep medicine. And there are even pediatric sleep medicine specialists within that. And they help to interpret sleep studies and to look at sleep strategies and to see if there is a sleep disorder aside from obstructive or um, central sleep central apnea. Sleep apnea. And we're, where we are located, we are very lucky to be in the middle of two world-class institutions, Stanford or Lucille Packard Children's Hospital and UCSF Medical Center. Uh, but you should research wherever you are. I am sure there is a sleep specialist near you if that's something you want to pursue or talk about it with your doc. Right. Now, when would you think that you need to pursue more in-depth analysis besides just showing? That is the question. Yes, right. Besides just going to your doctor and putting your phone to their ear with the snoring sounds of your child, which is what we see. Interestingly enough, often behavioral issues Mm -hmm. can be an indicator that there is a sleep problem. And we have seen children who really are acting out. Yes. We've seen children who are not growing well, who don't eat well, and also children who don't do well in school because they're not... They're, they're not able to focus. Um, and, and these problems have shown up as signs that there are potential sleep issues. And when they have had therapies to correct their sleep apnea, we've seen changes that are so positive. It's so dramatic sometimes. That their sleep quality is better. They actually are hungry. Mm-hmm. They gain weight appropriately. Everyone and they do the fam- well in school. Everybody in the family is sleeping better. So it's interesting that if there are behavioral issues, that sleep apnea is something to really consider and not just go straight to a learning or an attention problem. Yes. Actually, you, I think that's really important. And you could also have both. Yep. Uh, so you certainly can have more than one issue contributing to a child's focusing ability. But that's it, actually really important. Thanks for that. Yep. That's really important. But sleep is, this just illustrates how important sleep is in that trifecta of wellness we talk about. So what happens if you don't get enough sleep, Dr. Eileen, because you're a really important person and you've got a lot of work to do, or you decided to put off the final exam <laughs> studying until the night before, <laughs> or you're a four-year-old who just can't be bothered with missing out on life. What's the big deal? I'm not sleeping enough. What happens when you don't sleep enough all the time? Well, clearly, you can't get through your day right. if you're not sleeping well. Uh, it ends up becoming incredibly stressful for people. You can develop chronic anxiety. And we're seeing this especially among teens and millennials yes. now. That makes sense, not just from a 
the lack of sleep producing the anxiety, but also if you're not sleeping well, you just don't have the emotional capacity to deal with the same curveballs. And and again, if you are parents of a newborn or parents of a toddler that you're trying to sleep train or parents of a four-year-old that are trying to sleep train, you know that, that when you're not sleeping well, you're kind of edgy the next day. It's hard to be in your happy place when you're not sleeping well. So that makes total sense to me. And we see that. We see parents come in and they're you can see that they feel bad because they feel like they're not parenting to the best of their ability, but they're handicapped by their lack of sleep. So they know what they should do, but they're not, they're not able to, to be more patient or empathetic or happy um, or act or plan more activities because they're so tired. You know, one of the things, one of the biggest surprises I learned and, and a lot of this stuff was from reading work by Matthew Walker, who, again, there's links to all of his stuff, but Dr. Walker is a sleep scientist at UC Berkeley. Go Bears. Um, Go Bears. His <laughs> work is is both very illuminating but really scary. And I think the scariest thing for me from that work was re- was finding out that people who chronically don't get enough sleep, he started to see the same changes in their brains as people who have early Alzheimer's and early dementia. That is scary. That is scary. Right? I I can't control my genes for that, but I can control the sleep. And I think that's important to recognize, right? When we, again, we talk about the trifecta of wellness, you have some say in this. We don't always have some say in how our genetics are going to express Mm -hmm. and what diseases or syndromes we we are at risk for. But you can control this. The other thing I, I think was interesting was I always thought I could just, suck it up and get six to seven hours in the weekday and then just sleep for a long period of time in the weekend and make up for it. But Dr. Walker's work again is important. You know, that, that process we talked about cleaning up all the stuff that builds up. I like to call it the the brain reboot. Well, that does take about eight hours average. Now, when I say average, there's probably some people who are programmed, their brains can do it in less time and some people take more time, but eight hours is a good average. So you're you're cheating yourself of a fully effective brain reboot by not getting eight hours of sleep on average every night. You mean if I just sleep at, <laughs> for 10 to 12 hours on the weekend, it doesn't count? No, I wish it did. <laughs> That's not the world that we live in. Nobody said the trifecta of wellness was going to be easy. No, but it is important. So as you can see, sleep is really important. Basically, a lot of bad things can happen when you're not getting enough sleep high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, depression, obesity, anxiety, and a lot of good things can happen when you are getting enough sleep. The next session that we're going to have with you, the next episode, I said session, didn't I? I'm sorry. The next episode, the next podcast episode is going to be more about the nitty gritty about, yes, I understand sleep is important. How do we get good sleep? So stick around. There's some really good tips uh, that we've collected from all over the internet. But if If we leave you with nothing else from this episode, we want to leave you with this all-important message that sleep Sleep is very important. So turn the podcast off and go to sleep. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night.